ಓಂ ನಮೋ ಭಗವತೆ ಶ್ರೀ ಅರುಣಾಚಲರಮನಾಯ ನಮಸ್ಕಾರ ಸಬ್ಜೆಕ್ಟ್ ಐ ವಾಂಟ್ ಟು ಟೋಕ್ ಅಬೌಟ್ ಇಸ್ ಭಗವನ್ ಭಗವನ್ ರಮನ ದ ಫ್ಲವರ್ ಆಫ್ ವೆದಾಂತ ವನ್ ಐ ಸೇ ದ ಫ್ಲವರ್ ಆಫ್ ವೆದಾಂತ ವಾಟ್ ಐ ಮೀನ್ ಇಸ್ ಹೀಸ್ ಹೀಸ್ ದ ಫುಲ್ ಬ್ಲಾಸಮಿಂಗ್ ಆಫ್ ವೆದಾಂತ ಐ ಕುಡ್ ಈಕ್ವಲಿ ಕೋಲ್ ಹಿಮ್ say the cream of vedanta or the um or the crestule of vedanta um he is all those things and he is also the source of vedanta um he is the ultimate source from which all vedanta comes so this is what i would like to talk about today um to put this in context we need to first understand the place of vedanta in the broader family of indic religions oh, oh that is um jainism buddhism what is nowadays called hinduism sikhism these are all one family of of religions there um there is so much they share in common um the basic ideas of karma dharma uh samsara this endless cycle of birth and death and uh, moksha freedom from this cycle um and it's it's uh, there are so many uh um commonalities between all these there are of course so many differences so many so much variation so they are there's a, a huge diversity but with underlying commonality so these are all one family of um of religions um the the first major divide among these religions is the divide between astika and nastika um even these terms are differently interpreted by different in different contexts by different people but generally um that is one of one of the definitions is the astika uh, schools of philosophy accept the, the vedas as revealed uh, knowledge and the nastika do not accept but even those the, the, the jains and the buddhists do not accept the vedas in the, as as revealed um uh, as revealed knowledge um but even even they they have so much in common with all the astika philosophies so all these all these various divisions and distinctions they are very fluid and not they're not set in stone and um undoubtedly vedas uh influenced the development of buddhism and jainism and jainism and buddhism has influenced the development of all the various forms of hinduism that is all the all the many different uh, systems of philosophy uh, that have flourished in india over thousands of years each um they were always interacting with each other always feeding off each other that is drawing inspiration from each other um influencing each other in their arguing with each other they were each leading to the growth of the, the other so it's all one uh, large family um but the the astika philosophies as i say they all accept the the authority of the vedas but even among them there's so much uh, uh diversity of interpretation of the vedas and um the vedas are generally themselves divided particularly by uh, shankara he divided he he divided into two broad sections the karma kanda and the jnana kanda the jnana kanda is vedanta the uh, upanishads um uh, uh, the 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 jnana kanda is is uh, called vedanta because it is the it is the philosophical conclusion of um of the vedas that is all the what the all the karma portions ultimately lead to the final conclusion of all of the vedas is vedanta so vedanta is the um and nowadays when we talk about the vedas generally we're talking about vedanta that is the 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 old ritualistic um portions of the vedas though vedic rituals are still practiced 
they are not practiced in the same way as they were in the past. That is the whole, uh, the, the Astika family of, uh, that is the subfamily of uh, that we nowadays call Hinduism has developed in so many ways over the centuries. Um, but the Vedas uh, nowadays, uh, when we talk about the Vedic religion, we're generally talking about uh, Vedanta. And among the, um, the, the Astika schools of philosophy, they're generally classified as six. That is Nyaya, Vaisheshika, Sankhya, Yoga, and Uttara Mimamsa, uh, and Uttara Mimamsa. Uttara Mimamsa is another term for Vedanta. Um, so these six, but though these are six distinct systems of philosophy, each has each has contributed to the other. Each draws on the other. For, for example, nyaya, the the logic and the reasoning of of um, of the, the nyaya system is used by all the other systems. So there's so much um, there's so much um, uh, influence from all that. All of these are influencing each other, but the um, it all culminates in Vedanta. Vedanta is, uh, though Vedanta draws on all these others, ultimately Vedanta is the, is, uh, Vedanta is the pinnacle of the Vedas. And all these other systems um, contribute to Vedanta. So what nowadays we call Hinduism is to a large extent uh, Vedanta. Of course, there are other systems. There's the various forms of Shaivism, for example, the Kashmir Shaivism, the Shaiva Siddhanta in South India, um, which which may not describe themselves as as Vedanta uh, as part of Vedanta, but they are still strongly influenced by Vedanta. And of course, Shaivism has strongly influenced so many uh, has such a strong influence in Vedanta. So it's all one large family, but it's all. Um, it's as if Vedanta is the, the crest jewel of this vast uh, mountain. And um, the uh, Buddhism and Jainism, they have also, had, though they are distinct from Vedanta, they have drawn, they have been influenced by Vedanta, and Vedanta has been influenced by them. So it's all one large family. But the, the cream of this family, we can say, is Vedanta. And uh, among Vedantins, there are so many different forms of Vedanta. There's the uh, Advaita, um, which is uh, uh, Godapada and Shankara. There be uh, uh, the early representatives of the Advaita tradition. Then there's various forms of Beda, Beda Vedanta. There's um, Vishistha Dvaita, there's Dvaita, um, there's Achintya Beda, Beda Vedanta, the Gaudiya school, so many different interpretations. All these different interpretations, one of the ways in which they, the, the distinction between Advaita and the other schools is Advaita um, focuses very much on jnana. The other schools focus more on uh, bhakti. But bhakti and, and jnana, truly speaking, Vedanta is, is, is both bhakti and jnana. I mean, we, we, can't, we can't separate bhakti from, uh, from, uh, from, um, from jnana. Some Advaitins may have looked down on, on, on bhakti or considered jnana to be somehow superior. But if we see all, all the greatest Advaitins, uh, Shankara, for example, he sang so many devotional hymns. Um, and many of the later Advaitins, great Advaitins like um, Apaya Dikshita, he was a great Shaiva Bhakta and also a great Vedantin. And uh, he was in South India. In North India, um, I think his name was Mudusadena Saraswati. He had written a commentary on the Gita in which he blended the bhakti and jnana. So truly speaking, to consider Advaita as distinct from bhakti is a very limited view. But in Bhagavan's life, Bhagavan is the fullness of both bhakti and jnana. So Bhagavan, in, in, though philosophically, Bhagavan is very clearly an Advaitin, he... Um, 
that that is why the other school the the other schools of Vedanta are so popular. Vishista, Dvaita, Dvaita, Chinti, Chinti, Veda, Vedanta, Bhagodia school. Why these are so popular? Because naturally, bhakti has a great appeal to people. It has an emotional appeal to people, um, and um, as that is our nature is is not we we are we are as um as human beings or as any embodied being we are a mixture of intellect and emotion that is both of them are important sides of our nature so we cannot we cannot uh uh that is we we cannot uh separate we we cannot deny the importance of the the emotional side or the intellectual side, both are important. Um, of course, bhakti and jnana is more than just uh, intellect and emotion. It's more than, I mean, bhakti is much more than just emotion, and jnana is much more than just intellect. But these these two sides, they're two sides of our nature. In fact, even our real nature, apmasarupa, what is apmasarupa? It is satchitananda. Chit is jnana. It's all, also called satyam jnanam anantam. Satyam means being, what is. Uh, Jnanam means the, the awareness, the knowledge. And Ananta means it's infinite. So um, Brahman is, is, is the fullness of Jnana, Pragnanam Brahman. Uh, that is, Brahman is, is the pure awareness. But Brahman is also the fullness of love. Uh, uh, um, another description of Brahman is Asti Bhati Priyam. Asti means um, being, bhati means shining, that's the awareness, and priyam, the love. So Brahman is both the fullness of love and the fullness of, uh, of jnana. So since, um, since uh, that, uh, that is according to Vedanta, Brahman is the one reality. So, and that one reality is the fullness of both uh, uh, bhakti and jnana as we have seen exemplified in Bhagavan's lifetime, in Bhagavan, both in Bhagavan's life and in his teachings. That is, Bhagavan was a, um, his, uh, his teachings about a dvaita in the purest and of pure forms. That is, he, uh, though there were so many, that is, the, the, the literature on the dvaita philosophy is vast. From the, uh, the Upanishads, the Brahma Sutra, the Bhagavad Gita, um, the commentaries on these by Shankara, Godapada, Mandukya, Karika, and so many later commentaries and other texts on this. So there's a vast, vast literature of, on um, Advaita in Sanskrit and Tamil and so many other languages. So there's a vast amount of literature. A lot of it is very complicated. But Bhagavan has given us the simple essence of all the, that is, if we take Advaita as the essence of all of, the, of Vedanta, uh, Bhagavan's teachings are the essence of all of, of Advaita. Bhagavan presented Advaita in a very si simple but extremely profound form. And he also um, uh, he also highlighted the oneness of bhakti and jnana. Bhagavan often used to say, there are two ways, investigate yourself or surrender yourself. But though he sometimes spoke of it as if it was two ways, he also made it very clear that ultimately we can surrender ourselves only by knowing what we actually are. That is, what is the, when we say apma samapanam, what is the Atma but we have to surrender? Yeah, that is ego. Ego is a false awareness of ourself. So how can we surrender this false awareness of ourself except by being aware of ourselves as we actually are? So uh, it, it is only by in investigating ourselves that we can uh, we can we can begin surrendering ourselves before coming to this path of jnana. We begin by trying to surrender our will to the will of God. But ultimately, we cannot surrender our will fully without surrendering the one whose will it is. Whose will is it? It's ego's will. So we need to surrender ego. And we can surrender ego completely only by turning within and holding on to our own reality and thereby merging back into our source. That is why Bhagavan says in the, in the uh, first sentence of the 
13th paragraph of Nana, um, Arma Chintane Tavira, Vera Chintane Columba Vadaku, Satram Idum Kodamal, Apmanishta Paranai Iripte, Tane Isanaku Alipadam. That means, um, that means accept Atmachintana. Atmachintana literally means thought of oneself. It implies self-contemplation or self-attentiveness. In other words, it's, a, it's another term for Atmavichara. So accept self-attentiveness, giving not even the slightest room to the rising of any other thoughts, Thereby, uh, uh, being Atmanishtaparam, Atmanishtaparam means one who is firmly established as oneself, one who abides as oneself. That is giving oneself to God. So actually, the, uh, I read the sentence in the order in which it's, uh, it's presented in Tamil, but in English we would say it the other way around, because the main clause is Atmanishtaparanairapadei, uh, that uh, being uh, uh, one who is firmly established as oneself, alone is giving oneself to God. And then the first part of the sentence is an adverbial clause explaining how to be, how can we be happened apparent only by being so keenly self-attentive, by clinging so firmly to Atma Chintana, but we give no room to rising of any other Chintana. So there Bhagavan is clearly uh, implying that surrender, the, the final surrender can be achieved only by means of self-investigation. So Bhagavan shows how bhakti and jnana uh, merge together and become one. So though Bhagavan talked about two paths, Atma Vichara, self-investigation, and Atma Samapanam, self-surrender, truly speaking, these two are one. We, could, we, we cannot even begin to investigate ourselves without thereby surrendering ourselves. That is, to the extent to which we are turning our attention within, ego is thereby subsiding. The subsidence of ego is self-surrender. So in so many ways, Bhagavan uh, highlighted the, um, the, uh, the oneness of bhakti and jnana. Um, uh, 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 returning to what I was talking about before, one, one other point I wanted to talk about was um, when I was talking about uh, Vedanta in the broader context of, um, of the Indic family of religions, um, Vedanta, as uh, he, um, there's a beautiful verse in Aksharamalai in which Bhagavan, uh, what, what Bhagavan says in verse uh, 99 of Aksharamalai, Bhagavan sings, Vedan Tate Verera Vilangum Veda Arunachala. This is a prayer. What Bhagavan is praying in this verse is uh, Arunachala. Arul means here he's using Arul as a as a verb. Uh, so Arul means graciously give. Uh, Veda Porul. Porul is a word for which we have no adequate equivalent in English, that is the basic meaning of poral is the substance. Um, but it also, uh, poral means very much, is a Tamil word, but means very much the same as vastu in Sanskrit. So it's the substance, the reality. Um, but poral also means the meaning or the import. So give me the Veda poral, the, the substance or the import of Vedanta, uh, uh, Verara Bilangam, which shines without another Vedantate uh, in Vedanta. So what that so the meaning of the verses, if we just take the bare meaning, Arunachala graciously give the substance of the Vedas, which shines without another in Vedanta. If we slightly um if we if we slightly paraphrase that to bring out the the, the implied meaning. What Bhagavan is praying here is Arunachala, by revealing it in my heart as my own real nature, graciously give me the substance or import of Vedanta. Uh, in other words, the reality to which the, sorry, the substance or import of the Vedas, in other words, the reality to which the Vedas ultimately point, namely Brahman, the nature of which is pure awareness, I am, which as declared in Vedanta, shines without another. That is, shines without anything other than itself. That is in the, 
Upanishads, it is, uh, Brahman is described as ekam eva advaitiam. Ekam means one, eva means only, uh, advaitiam means without a second. So one only without a second. That is what Bhagavan is alluding to here when he says verara vilangam. So Bhagavan is clearly emphasizing here, but the, the true import of Vedanta, or of the Vedas, is contained in Vedanta, and it shines without another. It is, in other words, it is Brahman. The, the, the ultimate import of uh, the Vedas is only Brahman, and that shines without another as revealed in Vedanta. So Bhagavan, but Bhagavan here, this is a prayer. Bhagavan is praying for that. He's praying, Arul means grace. Uh, that is, Arul is both a noun but means grace, and a verb that means graciously give me or bestow upon me or grant me. So this is a, a here Bhagavan is 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 emphasizing the the, the ultimate aim is 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 the experience of otherlessness. In other words, Advaita, Advaita Anubhava is what he's praying for here. But he's praying for it. He, it's only by the grace of our natural that we can get this. So Bhagavan. Um, I will come back to this uh, a little later because um, before I come back to Akshramaya, I first want to talk about um, uh, Upadesha Undia, Upadesha Saram, in, and show how Bhagavan brings all the various uh, different practices and different forms of uh, spiritual practice, how he brings them to get all together and shows how they all lead ultimately to, um, to Jnana. That is, in Upadesha India, Bhagavan has spoken about uh, all the four magas, the, uh, uh, what are, that is often the spiritual path uh, described as four, four uh, separate paths. That is, the path of uh, karma, which in this context means nishkarmiya karma, the path of desireless action, the path of bhakti or devotion, the path of yoga, that means potentially it's yoga, the yoga, um, Raji yoga, as it's also sometimes called, and um, the path of jnana. These are generally said to be the four paths. But unlike some who claim that each of these four paths is an independent means to, a, to our final goal, Bhagavan makes it clear in Upadesha India, all these are, all these in, lead indirectly to a final goal, but they they take us to a final goal only by uh, merging in jnana. So that is what I'll now talk about for a little. That is in um, in Upadesha India, what and Upadesha Saram, but what Bhagavan in the um, in the first the first two verses because of the context in which Bhagavan wrote Upadesha India. That is Murugana. Murugana was a genius. He found the perfect context to get uh, to, to draw out these teachings from Bhagavan. When he was telling the, the story of the Darakavana Rishis in his Tiruvundiya uh, poem in uh, uh, Ramana Sandhi Murai, um, he that is in, in much of Sandhi Murai is um, is closely following Tiruvasakam. In Tiruvasakam, there's a poem called Tiruvundiya, in which Manakavasaka talks about various Shiva Leelas. In Murugana's view, um, Bhagavan is, is all gods. All gods are only manifestations of Bhagavan. So in, in Murugana's Tiruvundiya, he tells the stories of various gods. In fact, he, there are two Tiruvundiya uh, poems in, um, in uh, Ramana Sandhimurai. There's a long one and a short one. The short one, the second one, is, um, is just uh, some five or so verses, uh, the first two or three of which talk about uh, Buddha and the last two of which talk about uh, uh, Jesus. And he, so basically he's saying it was Bhagavan in the form of Buddha who started the, who started the wheel of Dharma uh, rolling. So it was, he's, in other words, he's saying it's Bhagavan who appeared in the form of Buddha to give the Buddhist teachings. And it was Bhagavan in the form of Jesus who died on the, the, the cross to save us from our sins. Um, 
so that that's one that's one terrible yeah but, but the main part he's talking about various uh the, the various gods of hinduism um uh, uh, Rama and Krishna and uh, Subramani and all these so various divine leaders he's talking about but he says it's Bhagavan in the form of all these various gods that did all these various leelas so the last leela he talks about in the, in the main Tiruvundiya, in the large Tiruvundiya is the story of the Darakavana rishis they were, though they were called rishis they were actually karmakandis. They were they were they were following the, the purva mimamsa, and according to the purva mimamsa, um, as Murugana says in one of his um, in one of the earlier verses of um, when he's telling the story, he says that uh, they 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 became very proud, uh, thinking. Uh, karma te andri except karma there is no god. Um, that is the philosophy of Purva Mimamsa. Purva Mimamsa raises it, puts pe- the power of karma on such a pedestal, they think there's no need for any god. So, um, uh, uh, Bhagavan selected that verse where Murugana said that as part of the Upagatam, part of one of the introductory verses to um, Upadeshundia. So, in that context, what Bhagavan says in the first verse of Upadeshundia, is karmam payantaral kartana danayal karmam kadavalo undipara karmam jadamadal undipara that is kartaragnya palam karma kimparam karma tachadam in sanskrit so but what what this means is what i'll read the meaning of a tamil version action giving fruit is by the ordainment of god since action is non-aware, since action is jada, is action God? In other words, karma, when we do an action, that is, the action is done by us, but as soon as we've done the action, the fruit of the action is out of our hands. If we uh, shoot an arrow, so long, before we shoot the arrow, we can aim it in whatever direction we want. Once we've actually shot it, we have no control thereafter what its target will be. Likewise, when we do any action, we may do an action for a certain purpose, but once we've done the action, the fruit of that action is out of our hands. It's in the hands of God. So whatever whatever action we do, that means whatever agamya we do, the fruit of that agamya is stored in Sanchitta. And from Sanchitta, God selects which fruit will be most favorable for us to experience when. So so what is the appropriate fruit for each karma and when, where and how we should experience that fruit, that's entirely in the hands of God. That's what Bhagavan means by karma payandaro kartana danayal. In Sanskrit, kartaragnya prapyade palom. So the fruit are entirely in his hands. We are the doer of actions, but the fruit and when, where, which, what is the, which fruit should be is appropriate for which action is entirely in his hands. So, uh, but, but in, in, in Purva Mimamsa, they, because they don't want to accept God, they say there is something called Adrishta, something unseen, but, is, uh, but decides about what it should be the fruit of the action. But according to Bhagavan, the fruit of the action is entirely in the hands of God. Then he asks, Karmam Kadavalo, can karma be God? Karmam Kimparam, uh, karma, uh, uh, Karmam Jadamadal, since in Tamil he says, Karmam Jadamadal, since karma is Jada. In Sanskrit, he says, karmam tachadam, karma is insentient. So since karma is insentient, karma cannot decide which fruit is appropriate for which action. It is only God who decides that. So Bhagavan is here repudiating the philosophy of the Pova Mimamsa. He's showing that karma is always subservient to God, that we do the karma, but God decides the fruit, and it is God who allots us the fruit in the form of our prarabdha. Um, then in the next verse, mm-hmm. that means the fruit of action perishing. That is, when we experience the fruit of any action, 
that that fruit is finished. That is, if you're if someone gives you a mango, you can't eat it today and keep it to eat tomorrow. Once you've eaten mango, mango is finished. So likewise with the fruit of action. When the fruit of action is experienced, it's thereby finished. But though the fruit of action perishes, what remains is the seed. The seeds here means the vasanas. So it, as he then says, vittai vine cuddle vetiram, as seed causes to fall in the ocean of action. Um, in the Sanskrit version, uh, because Bhagavan wrote in a shorter meter, he doesn't mention the seed. So he leaves it there. In, in Sanskrit, he says in the first line, um, um, uh, kriti mahodado patanakaranam. The cause for falling in the uh, vast ocean of action. What is the cause? He doesn't say. He leaves it for us to understand. But in, Sanch in the Tamil version, he makes it clear. It's the seeds. And what are the seeds? As he says in the Malayalam version, vasana uh, kara vittai. That is the, uh, the seeds in the form of vasanas. So it's the vasanas. That is, why do we do any action? We do action because we want to experience certain vishayas. So those inclinations to experience vishayas are what are called vishaya vasanas. And because the vishaya vasanas lead us to do um, actions, they're also called karma vasanas. So whether we call vishaya vasanas or karma vasanas, ultimately it's the same. So it's the vasanas that that lead us to do action. And that is what causes us to fall in the great ocean of action. And then in Bhagavad, so Bhagavan concludes this verse in Tamil saying, Vidu Tarele, it does not give liberation. Um, in Sanskrit, he says, Palamasaswatam, um, uh, that is the, the, the translation of Vinayam Vilevutru, the fruit of action perishing. Palamasaswatam uh, means the fruit is impermanent. That is, once you experience the fruit, it's finished. But then he says, Gati Nirodakam, that is, when, because the, the seeds, uh, vasanas causes to fall in the great ocean of action. Action cannot give a uh, liberation. Um, it, it, uh, well, in Tamil, he says it cannot give liberation. In Sanskrit, he says even more forcibly, it obstructs liberation. Nirodakam, it's, uh, it's the obstacle to liberation. So how can we attain liberation? If, if action won't give us liberation, what can we do to attain liberation? Anything we do is only binding us all the more. So in verse 3, this is where the, the real spiritual teachings begin. In verse 3, what Bhagavan says is, Kartunu kakam nishkarmiya karmam, karate tirti akdundi para, gativari kambikum undi para. That means nishkarmiya uh, karma uh, is desireless action. That is action we do not for the sake of any, normally when we do any action, we do it for some purpose. We, 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 we all, we, all our actions are, as a general rule, driven by some aim. We do some action because we want to experience some result. So, but nishkarmiya karma is action done without any expectation of, uh, or without any uh, desire for the results. We are doing the action. So, how, but how can we do action without any purpose? So, Bhagavan says here, kartanu kakam, that is done for God. In the Malayalam version, he says, Ishwara Pritianai. That means done uh, uh, for the love of God. So it is, we, if we want to do Nishkarmiya Karma, we need to act just for the love of God, not for what we can get out of it, but just for the love of God. So here Bhagavan indicates, actually, though they talk about the Karma Marga and Nishkarmiya Marga, as if it's a separate path, actually Bhagavan takes the Nishkarmiya Karma Marga as a part of bhakti. That is, bhakti begins with actions. So, uh, because we, we, without that, without that love for God, how can we do Nishkarmiya Karma? We, any action has to have some motivation. So if it's not motivated by love of God, it's going to be motivated by, by desire for some result. So, uh, uh, Bhagavan takes Nishkarmiya Karma as a subsidiary part of the path of bhakti, as I'll explain in more detail. Um, and he says, 
karate tirity. Okay, sorry, um, um, karate tirity. That means um, or oh, aktu karam. Uh, what is it? Um, uh, uh, yes, uh, 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 karate me here means the mind or the chittam. Tirati means uh, 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 purifying, or literally tirati means rectifying, but it implies purifying the, purifying the mind or purifying the chittam. Uh, in Sanskrit, he says chittasodakam, ishwarapitam, necheakritam. What is offered to God, not done with desire, chittasodakam, mind purifier, mukti sadakam. Liberation accomplishing. In Sanskrit, he says mukti sadhakum, but we have to understand it's not a direct means to liberation. In Tamil, he says it more clearly. He says it will show the way to liberation. What does this mean? That is, we cannot by any action attain liberation. But if we do the action just for the love of God, not for anything we can gain for it, that will purify the mind. And the purified mind will recognize the, the path to liberation. Come become means it will we can translate it as show, but it's actually a causative uh, um, the, the, the causative form of Khan, which means to see. So it will cause to see. So it will enable us to see what is the path to liberation. So the path to liberation is not karma per se, because karma obstructs liberation, but it uh it, it, it by uh, by doing nishkarmiya karma for the love of God, that will purify the mind, and the, in the purified mind, we will then recognize what is the path to liberation. Uh, so that's what Bhagavan is saying in the third verse. Then in the fourth verse, he begins to talk about the different forms of nishkarmiya karma we can do. He says, didamidu, this is certain, puja japamum, uh, dhyanam, udal vaku ula toril. Puja, japa, and dhyana are actions of body, speech, and mind. Re we have to understand respectively that if puja is an action of the body, uh, japa is action of speech, and uh, dhyana is action of mind. Um, uh, Weavu ahum ondril ondru. Uh, that's a very, that literally means one, then one is superior. What he means is in this order, the more efficacious in purifying the mind than puja, japa, more efficacious than japa, dhyana. So in this order, each one is superior. When he says superior in this context, because the subject matter is that the aim of all these nishkaramiya karmas is. Pur the purification of the mind. So when he says it's superior, he means it's a more effective means to purify the mind. Um, in the Sanskrit, he says, Kaya van mana, kariyam utamum, pujanam japa, chintanam kramat. That means uh, uh, worship, repetition, uh, or puja, japa, and dhyana. Um, actions to be done by body, speech, and mind are progressively superior. And then in the next three verses, he talks about each of these. In verse five, he gives us a very broad definition of, uh, of puja. Uh, what he says is, Ennuru yavum ireyuru amena ennivari padal undipara isan nalpusane undipara. That means worshipping, thinking that all eight forms are forms of God is good, is good worship of God. The eight forms here, this is a, a, a Shaiva uh, concept, that is, it, uh, Shiva is often referred to as Ashtamurti, and his, uh, the, the, eight, the one with eight forms. And the eight forms are said to be, uh, different books give slightly different uh, classifications, but generally the, the, what is the eight forms are uh, the five elements, earth, water, fire, and space. Um, and uh, sun, moon, and sentient beings, jiva. So that's virtually the whole, that everything is included. Everything is made of the five elements. So worshipping anything, taking it to be a form of God, is good worship of God. So if you do, if you see a hungry person 
and you consider and you offer food to that person with the attitude that you're offering food to God, that is good worship of God because it's God in the form of that person who has come to you with a need for food. Or if you see um, nowadays we live in a world with so much uh, environmental damage we see going on. So if we try to live an eco-friendly lifestyle, trying to avoid causing more damage to the environment, if we have the attitude that the whole world is God, all the elements are God, and so we are trying to avoid doing harm to the world because we consider the world to be God. That is good worship of God. So the Bhagavan doesn't limit puja just to the ritual puja. Of course, ritual puja is also a good form of worship, but Bhagavan gives us a very broad definition of worship. Um, and then in uh, verse 5, he talks about um, japa. The, the, um, he says, Varotilil um, Vaku, Vaikul Japatil, Virupamam Manadum Undipara, Vilumbum Dhyanamid Undipara. This is Bhagavan. Um, Bhagavan pack, this is a real sutra here because Bhagavan packs so much into it. But the literal meaning of this is, Rather than praising, loud voice, rather than japa within the mouth, what is done by mind is beneficial. This is called dhyana. That is what he, Bhagavan is here talking about. Uh, he, he's, um, he's classifying different practices. That is, rather than praising, rather than singing stotras aloud, um, doing japa in a loud voice is good. Rather than japa in a loud voice, Japa whispered softly within the mind is good. Rather than jop, sorry, whispered softly within the mouth is good. Rather than the softly whispered Japa, Japa done by the mind is good. And uh, that Japa done by the mind, this is a form of dhyana. So he, in all these, he's, 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 he's grading this. When he says it's beneficial or superior, he means it's more effective in uh, purifying the mind. Um, why is why are, is japa more effective than puja? Because the speech is a subtler instrument than the body. So the actions done by body are relatively gross. The actions done by speech are subtler, and the actions done by mind are still subtler. So they're more effective means to purify the mind. We can be doing puja mechanically, for example, without uh, our mind can be wandering here and there. We can just be mechanically going through the actions of puja. But if we are meditating, if our mind wanders off, we immediately know our mind has wandered off because we're no longer thinking of God. Um, and Japa is somewhere in between these two. We can, we can, it's possible to just do, continue um, repeating the mantra mechanically without really thinking about what, we, what the mantra denotes. If we are, for example, if we are singing um, in our mind, uh, Namo Ramanaya or Arunachal Shiva or Namashivaya or, or any mantra. Um, we, it's very easy for us to allow our mind to wander off to other things. The tongue or the, the mind, in the background, the mantra will be going on, but the mind is still wandering. Um, so that's why each one is uh, superior to the previous one. And so rather than doing singing stotras in a loud voice, doing japa in a loud voice. That is, japa means, implies it, you're, you're concentrating just on a few words. So that's more focus. And rather than doing it in a loud voice, uh, whispering it softly within your mouth. And rather than whispering it softly in your mouth, doing it mentally, that is good. So but here Bhagavan, Bhagavan is... Bhagavan isn't saying all practices are equal. Bhagavan is showing how each practice can lead on to the further practices and how each, each successive practice is superior to the previous one. And then in verse 7, he talks about dhyana. He says, um, uh, uh, virutu, sorry, vittu karutalin um, uh, arune vichipol uh, vidadu unnale undipara undipara. Uh, that means rather than meditating interruptedly, meditating uninterruptedly, like a river uh, or like, like the, the continuous flow of a river or the falling of ghee, is superior. It's a superior way to meditate. So that is when we are meditating on God, 
if our mind is, keeps on wandering off elsewhere, that means we, we are more interested in other things than we are in God. So the more our love, the greater our love for God, the less our mind will wander away from. Because why does our mind wander away to other things? Because other things seem to be more interesting than thinking about God. But the more we have love for God, the more interrupted our meditation will be. That's why Bhagavan said the uninterrupted meditation is superior to the um, um, meditation done interruptedly. Because the key to all these, remember, Bhagavan said in verse 3, done for God. That implies done for the love of God. So the key to all these practices, that is, Bhagavan in these, when Bhagavan talks about puja, japa, and dhyana, he's not talking about karmiya. Puja, Japa, and Dhyana. Doing, uh, people do puja for gaining some result. They do Japa for expecting some result or meditation, expecting some result. If I meditate on God, then God will bless me and he'll remove my difficulties and give me all I want. So long as we're doing that, that's not what Bhagavan's talking about here. Bhagavan is here talking about the Nishkamiya Puja, Japa, and Dhyana. Um, so, because these are actions of mind, speech, and body, this is what this is, these. Preliminary practices of uh, of bhakti are the part of nishkarmiya karma, but after verse seven, Bhagavan switches from the from the karma to the from doing to being. The, the switches when he's that is so long as we are taking God to be something other than ourselves. When we meditate on Him or doing puja to Him or repeating His name, our attention is going out away from ourselves towards something else. That is, we are still taking God to be something other than ourselves. But is God other than ourselves? No, but, I mean, so long as we rise as ego and seem to be this small person, then God seems to be something other than ourselves. But actually, God is that which is shiny in our heart as I. Abhanahamahum, he is I, soham. So, uh, what Bhagavan says in verse 8 is, rather than Anya Bhavatin Abhanahamahum Ananya Bhavame Undipara Anatinum Utumum Undipara. Rather than the um than uh, um the meditating on God as Anya, something other than ourselves, meditating on him as not other than ourselves, as Ananya, we're meditating on what, what is not other than ourselves is only ourselves. And why do we meditate on him as not other than ourselves? Because we recognize that he is that which shines in our heart as I, Abhanahamahum. So with that understanding that God is shining in our heart as I, meditating on nothing other than I, that is anaitinamutamum. That is the best among all. That means it's the most effective means to purify the mind. It's the best practice of bhakti. Um, sorry, I see I'm running out of time a little, so I'll just try and speed up a bit. Then in verse eight, 9, he says, Baba Balatinal Bhavana Tita Sabhava Tirutale Undipara Parabhakti Tatava Mundipara. By the strength of that uh of that uh, of that barber, that is what he refers to here as barber is referring to the what he referred to in the previous verse as the Ananya barber. In other words, the meditation on oneself. So, in other words, by the strength of self attentiveness, barbana tita sat tirutale. Being in sat barber. Sat barber means um, the the state of being. So, being in the state of being by the strength of that self attentiveness. Um, and that state of being is bhavana uh, tita. Uh, it is beyond all bhavana. Bhavana here implies meditation as an action, as a, as a mental activity. So the, uh, if we are focusing our, so long as we're allowing our attention to go out towards anything else, even the name or form of God, that is a mental activity because it's a movement of our attention away from ourselves towards God. When we turn our attention back within to see who am I, um, we, uh, we, we, our, our attention is not moving, it is subsiding back into its source. So by the strength of self-attentiveness, we remain in the state of just being, the Sat Baba, which is beyond all mental activity. And that, Bhagavan says, is Parabhakti Tattva. That is the, the nature or reality of supreme devotion. Um, so here Bhagavan has shown how the, how, the, how 
karma is a subsidiary part of bhakti, and bhakti uh, uh, leads to um, eventually to a path of jnana, the path of meditating on oneself alone, nothing other than oneself, and that is the parabhakti tattva. So in effect, what Bhagavan is saying here, being as we actually are, by the strength of self-attentiveness is parabhakti tattva. So Bhagavan is showing that the path of self-investigation is the pinnacle of the path of bhakti. It's not something, it's not, an, it's not a separate path, it's what the path of bhakti is leading up to. Because when we attend to ourselves, ego is thereby subsiding. So that is surrender, that is giving ourselves to God, as he says in the, 13, in the first sentence of the 13th paragraph of Nana that I referred to earlier. So that is the that is the parabhakti tattva. That means the nature or reality or true state of supreme devotion. So according to well, when Bhagavan teaches us a part of vichara, he's teaching us the ultimate practice of bhakti. And then in the next verse, verse ten, he summarizes everything. He says. Um, that in verse 9 he referred to as being in our state of being. What he refers to there is being in Sabhava uh, Tirutale, uh, uh, being in the, in, in the state of being, is what he describes in um, verse 10 as Udita Idatil Odungi Iratal, being subsiding in the place from which we rise. Um, uh, that is being as we actually are by subsiding in the place from which we've risen. What is the place from which we've risen? The place from which we've risen is our real nature. That, that, that is, though he refers to it as a place, it's not literally, a, we shouldn't take place in a literal sense. That is, uh, when ego rises, from where does it rise? It can only rise from our real nature. Because as he says in verse 26 of, Up of Uludunapdu, for example, if ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. Ahande undain, anetum undahum. Ahande indrail, intranatum. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. Everything there means all objects, all phenomena. So if everything else comes from ego, from where can ego come? It cannot come from anything else. It can only come from the one thing that always exists, namely Atmasurupa, our own real nature, Brahman. So Brahman is the is our Udita, is the, uh, the place from which we've risen. So being in that, being as we actually are, that is karma and bhakti, that is yoga and jnana. Is what Bhagavad So this verse 10 is summarizing everything. So ultimately, all these paths are leading to the state of just being. Then in um, the next uh, five verses, he talks about the path of, uh, of uh, yoga. He, and he shows how that, that leads to, the, um, to, to this path of vichara. First, in, in verse 11 and 12, he says, he explains why um, when one restrains the breath, the mind is also restrained like a bird caught in a net. This is a means to restrain the mind. And um, and he explained why, because the mind and the breath are like two branches um, uh, of, of, a, of a single tree. And they, they have the respective functions of knowing and doing, but their root is one. So that's why if you control one, you control the other. So by controlling the breath, that's a means to, to subdue the activity of mind. But then in verse 13, he says, there but dissolution of mind, that what he says in Tamil is Ilayamum Nasum Irendum Mam Oduka uh Odukum uh Ilayatu uh uh Erum um uh Undipara uh Eradu uh Uru Mindedale Undipara. What that means is dissolution. That means dissolution of mind is of two kinds, Leia and Nasa. What is uh, lying down or dissolved in Leia will rise. If its form dies, it will not rise. So in yoga, they're trying to control the mental activity. That is by controlling the, 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 the breath, they control the mental activity. They subdue the mental activity. But if we take that too far, we end up in Manolaya. But our aim is not Manolaya, because Manolaya is only temporary. We, our aim is Manonasa. So how to attain Manonasa, he explains in verse 14. What he says in verse 14, 
only Odeka valie odungum ulate, vidicabe o vali undipara, vium adonuru undipara. That means only when one sends the mind, which will become calm when one restrains the breath on the investigating path, will its form perish. That is what the word he uses for investigating path is or vari. Or is a word that has two meanings in this context. We can take it as one path. We can take it also as orum vari, the investigating path. Um, so the, what, the one path by which the mind will die is the path of self-investigation. So he's, Bhagavan is referring here to a path of self-investigation. So if we, Bhagavan often used to say, if people wanted to do pranayama, he would say, fine, if you find it beneficial to do pranayama, fine, but don't let it go to the extent where you subside in layer, because that's of no benefit. Before the mind subsides in layer, once you've achieved a certain degree of, of, of calmness of mind, then you should use that calmness of mind by turning your attention back within to see who am I. That Looking within to see who am I is the investigating path that he refers to here. And he says, only when one sends the mind on the investigating path will its form die. So again, he's showing how yoga, ultimately, the ultimate aim of yoga can be achieved only by turning to this path of self-investigation. Sorry, I, I, I misestimated the time. I've got only a few minutes left. So I, I, there was, I tried to cover too much ground. Um, what I wanted to conclude by saying is when Bhagavan talks about the oneness of bhakti and jnana, He's not just talking about it. Um, it's not. It's, that is he. That is his actual experience, and we can see that most clearly in well in all the five hymns, or all of Aranachas Tutipanchikam, but most especially in Aranachaksharamamalai. That is the 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 song of of supreme love that is the the purest of pure bhakti we can find in in Aksharam Lai. Um, that is he Bhagavan sang Aksharam Lai in the uh, what is sometimes called the Nayaki Nayaka Baba. That is the the Baba of the the bride and, and the bridegroom. That is the bride the Jiva God is the bridegroom. The Jiva is the is the bride. Um, in the bhakti traditions of uh, of uh, of other other parts of Vedanta, in the, the among the Vishistha Dvaitins and the Dvaitins and the, the, the Gaudiya Sampradaya and other um, the, the more bhakti traditions of Vedanta, this is this I think they call it Matra Baba. Uh, this this Nayaki Nayaka Baba. It's considered the highest and purest form of love. That is the, the it's exemplified in the love of the gopis for Krishna. That is the love the gopis took themselves to be the the, the, the brides of Krishna. Uh, of course, this isn't it, it isn't to be taken as literally true. It's not about it's not about the, the carnal love. The carnal love is used as a as a metaphor for the uh, for the uh, true deep inner love, um, the, the love of the soul for God, the love of the jiva for God. This is exemplified throughout. That, I mean, this barber is so strong throughout Akshramla. It's a heart melting song. But at the same time, if we if we study Akshramla deeply, it's got very deep. Advaitic import, that is what Bhagavan is praying for. From the very first verse, he's talking about annihilation of ego. When ego is annihilated, everything is annihilated. Then one only, then what remains is only Aranachala. And Aranachala, of course, is our own real nature. As Bhagavan says in, um, for example, in, um, in, um, in Arunachya Patik, uh, in Arunachya Pancharatnam, in the second verse of Arunachya Pancharatnam, Bhagavan says in Sanskrit, Pridi Atma Iti Atma Teya Nrityasi. Um, as one self, you dance in the heart as I. And in Tamil, he says, Nityamum, always, Nad Endru, as I, Idiom, uh, since you always dance in the heart as I, 
They say your name is heart itself. So Arunachari is, our, is Atman. It's our own real nature. It is Atmasvarupa. It is a, so what Bhagavan is praying for in the heart-melting language of, 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 of devotion, and I don't think anyone, any serious bhakta can read Akshramlai and not be melted by it. It is such a heart-melting prayer, but it's all a prayer for the Advaitana Baba, for the, uh, for the, uh, for the, that is the very second verse of Akshramlai, Bhagavan prays, um, like Arahu and Sundram. Arahu is a Tamil word that means beauty, and Sundram is a Sanskrit word that means beauty. So though the forms are different, they are one in meaning. And Arahu is also the name of Bhagavan's mother, and Sundram is the name of his father. So Bhagavan is talking about also alluding to the harmony and oneness of their marriage. But the primary meaning, it, he's talking about the words Arahu and Sundram, which have the same meaning. Like Arahu and Sundram, may you and I, um, uh, uh, we can split it in two ways. We can take it either as Utru, which means becoming one, or we can take it as uh, oh, oh, uh, uniting, utru means uniting, or we can take it as mutru, which means completely. So may you and I uh, uh, be completely non-different. Um, that's one meaning. Another meaning is Bhagavan is saying you and I are non-different. We can take it another way. Either Bhagavan is, is reminding us there in the very second verse that he and I are natural one, if we take it as a statement, if we take it as a prayer, it's a prayer for that oneness. So that state of uh, complete non-difference. Abhinam. Uh, Abhinam um, <clears throat> uh, means without any difference. And Muttu Abhinam means completely without any difference. So this is what Bhagavan is praying for in Aksharamalai. So he's praying for the Advaita Anubhava, but he's praying in a language of bhakti. So Bhagavan is the fullness of both bhakti and jnana. I'm sorry I couldn't say more, but this is, uh, I had so much more to say, but uh, um, when we start talking about Bhagavan, there's no end to it. Bhagavan is, he is, uh, he is the flower of Vedanta. He's the flower of all, of, of all human spiritual endeavor. He is the source and the goal of all of us. Om namo bhagavate sri arunachala ramanaya. <clears throat>